This is episode 37 of Free as in Freedom. I'm Karen Sandler. And I'm Bradley Kuhn. This is Free as in Freedom. And folks will probably have already noted that there is no date stated at the beginning of this episode because we don't know its release date. I think that it, I wonder. I, I, I don't think I would notice. Oh, well. <laughs> I, so our listeners noticed last time that I had uh, like I had added recording material because we had to do that editing last time. Yeah. And I, they noticed that there was like some weird, what they called voiceover from me. Oh, did they? I didn't really They, not- I, they uh, noticed that. And so they noticed these things. Yeah. Our listeners. But did. trust us, it was a much better show with yeah, the editing. Yeah. We, well, Dan, <laughs> Dan Lynch did a great job. Thank and, you, and Dan Lynch. Because he did such a good job, we don't want to make his volunteer no. job even harder. Which, because we're recording this late, the weekend when Dan does his volunteer producing of the show for us is the off weekends from Rat Hole Radio, which is his, uh, right. his music show. And so now he won't have a weekend uh, to edit this. We don't know when he's actually going to edit it, so we're going to leave it open for when he has time. And this will come out at some point after yeah, Dan Yeah, and has we may time. have to wait anyway just to get on the right schedule with him. But we'll, yeah, it'll, we'll maybe it, do an extra one even. And we'll have to see. Yeah. But we don't know when this will be released, but we're recording it on the last day of 2012. That's the actual recording time. Yeah. And there's so stuff going there's, on in free software that we have to talk uh, about. Well, I was going to just say Happy New Year to all of our listeners. I mean, it'll be, it's whenever hot. this gets released, it's we early 2013. We talked about this last year. The, the <laughs> dates are arbitrary. It doesn't matter. You don't say Happy New <laughs> no, Month but, or but, Happy New Week But it is, a, it is a time and, that we have decided as a society to mark the time. And so since we have all agreed to do that, arbitrary as it may be, people do choose this time as a time of reflection and um, and as a time of celebration. And so... Well, why didn't they I choose hope- the last day of the Mayan calendar for that? I mean, heck, the world was supposed a to A lot end. of people did celebrate. Yeah. Well, I, we I, celebrated. Right. I kept saying that that I, had a ca- I hadn't bought my 2013 wall calendar yet. And so if I died at the end of 2012, <laughs> people would say, well, he knew the world was going to end because he didn't buy a 2013 people calendar. People wouldn't be saying anything because the world would have ended. I don't think that. That's that, don't 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 uh, don't, quote, don't quote me that because that's what Ayn Rand said when she died, and I don't want to be. What did? So famously, she said when when in one of her final interviews when she was asked about dying, she said, "I'm not going to die. The world's just going to end." Mm-hmm. So don't I don't want to be yeah. compared with Ayn Rand. It's, I I think yeah. that's. But no, yeah. but I mean, my I point is is that is that because people the people saw the Mayans didn't finish their calendar for future dates, and they assumed that they must have thought the world was ending. Mm-hmm. Just because they didn't well, there's a, the there's a lot of buy the new well, uh, Yeah, <laughs> maybe they should have bought the new calendar. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. They could have. Yeah. Well, well, I guess they couldn't have because there's nobody selling calendars. And I like end of the world proclamations. It's a good time to have a party. Okay. Anyway, so, uh, so the, there was there were responses on Identica to my. I'm trying to remember what comments. we're talking about. My comments last time. Oh right, 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 right. And so it's it's it happens when I say anything controversial or. It, or or harsh that people think is harsh that that we get lots of feedback. Maybe that gets us more listeners. I don't know. I don't know because you never say anything controversial or harsh. That's not true. I I have occasionally. You're not a harsh person. I appreciate that. I do. You know, when we've gotten when I've said a few things that people have disagreed with, they tend to send personal emails. Actually, um, we've gotten emails entitled "Dearest Karen, I know that you you meant well." <laughs> <laughs> and I did. I promise I did. Well, I, I think Evan Prodromo actually started the thread. And because he has so many followers, uh, because he's the originator and uh, primary developer of Identica and StatusNet and his new stuff that's Apache licensed that's going to run underneath all that, Pump.io, that mm-hmm. stuff. Because he's that, oh, he has a lot of followers. And so a lot of people saw it when he quoted me. And I, I pointed out to Evan that he did quote me out of context because I said at some point, I wish Canonical would go away. Yeah. And I that was in I I went back and listened to the audio because I was like did I really say that and why did I say that because it it does sound harsh out of context I agree with that it sounded harsh in context too I have well to say. but it was in the context of the forking I I think I actually kind of disagreed with you on some of you your did disagree with me but my point criticism. that when I made that point actually we were kind of in agreement um, you did disagree and say I want them more engaged like I said it's yeah hard. yeah you said I want exactly, them more engaged. exactly but the context was the forks and my argument was that. Uh, canonical should go away from Ubuntu in the sense that they that Ubuntu should be its own thing and free from canonical. Uh, does such a thing exist? 
Well, and then we were talking about that, how there yeah. was Kubuntu, and yeah. that is separate now from Canonical because they're not funding anyone. And, then, and, so, and so that's where we went in that conversation. So that was in the context of, of Ubuntu and control of Ubuntu. Right. Because but that was the main problem I had last uh, episode where I was talking about how I was so upset about the way Canonical was using free software to basically put out spyware and, and people argue with the identica about whether it's spyware or not and there was those arguments as well. Well did you see the um, the GNOME shopping extension that was released? No, it's I rely on you for all my GNOME community news, so you'll have Fair to give enough. It to me. No, uh, just there's a, a GNOME extension that you can um, you can use to to specify which online you know you can you can basically have a, a shell search for uh, oh, Amazon that's be products default and you can 3, 3? and you can what that's going to be the default now in GNOME three three GNOME three three or three four. <laughs> We're more advanced than that. But it's not going to be default. It's not going to be default. I was trying to make a joke that you were going to do the same thing as Canonical. That was the joke. Oh, oh, oh I see. But it's going to be the default. It's going to be hard to have to edit the code to turn it off. Is that the deal? No, extensions in there by default. hardwired in the JavaScript VM. You won't be able to change it. There's a Muckware article about it that actually I noticed today. I don't know when it actually came out, but it was the point of the article was you know the control is with the user where it should be. So the the you know the yeah, idea is that it's all very transparent. And I didn't think the Gnome Foundation was actually going to do that in part because it would be unrelated business income, which would be annoying for you anyway. It would be annoying, but I think at this point we would take unrelated business <laughs> income because it's and pay our taxes so that we could get the income. <laughs> well, yeah, but the thing is, is you can't have too much of that because no, but it, right. But I mean, how much unrelated business income would we yeah, would yeah. we get from that kind of arrangement? Uh, probably a lot. A lot of people use Gnome. Yeah, you, I mean, you can always... It's quite, it, we should see, I guess, Canonical's a private company, so we'll never know how much money they actually got from it. That's true. But I, it, like I said last time, I would be surprised if they did it for a small amount of money because they want to do it for yeah. a lot. But then your, your argument, we're rehashing the last show at this point, but your argument was that they just wanted to collect the database of, of what people That's, yeah, right, for. future business model future business, investment. Yeah. So that's, yeah. uh, the, and, and I just wanted to well, go actually, over that. Well, actually, I would that. say that the extension, just to correct, because since we did get on this, that the affiliate code and extension does not go to the GNOME Foundation. Where does it go? It goes to the developer. Oh, really? Yeah. That's, that's... Uh, I, I just learned about the extension, so... That's interesting. Uh, well, I guess if the GNOME... I guess that's reasonable if the GNOME Foundation is not the one distributing it. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's, it's reasonable that people writing extensions can have them do whatever they want them to. That's part of the you know, the neat thing about extensions, but at the same time, you know, if, if so, you know, I, it allows people to choose which extensions they want and which they don't. Mm. So, and you know, there are only certain circumstances which, during which the GNOME proper release will, you know, or GNOME, the, the GNOME organization will approve of an extension or a, a collection yeah. of extensions. Well, you're still working on that, right? Of the approved set of extensions? Or is that done? Or what's the deal with that? Yeah, no, we're still working on that. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, I was actually... Recommend, I, guess I was actually, so. yeah, recommended, not approved. But I was, was actually um, referring to like the GNOME classic legacy um, set of extensions. Hmm. Uh, well, yeah. My, my just, main, so that's what I was referring to when I said I, I just know, think there are only be, a discrete would, it, yeah, set of It would be doubtful that GNOME would ever even recommend this extension, really. Right. That would just be an extension people could get if they wanted it. Right. I, don't, I can't imagine who wants that. I, sh I showed my wife some of the screenshots, and she was like, why in the world would anybody oh, you, want that the, search? Oh, no, you're talking other, the about Ubuntu. Ubuntu. The Ubuntu right. thing. But I showed her extension. Right. Like, basically, her point was it would be the same. with the, She'd have the same reaction to the GNOME extension. Because she was like, why would you want your desktop to search for anything in a shop? Like, well, no, I mean, I think people might want to. I mean, because uh, I think when you use the um, when you use GNOME Shell, I mean, it's, it's really convenient to use the search box to navigate generally so that's where people now you know, that's where a lot of people default to when they do anything and so rather than la launching a browser and going to a shop if we had a tab that in addition to the default you know wikimedia um, which is you know if there's nothing if there are no results in the you know of course i'm a person who used to only use the internet in a cheroot so <laughs> right. i would only run my browser in a cheroot in an xnest um uh, right. I think it's, yeah, it's funny for you to be sort of, you know, anticipating what users would. <laughs> oh, I'm not anticipating. I, I, the only user I can anticipate is my, is my wife from what she's had and myself. Mm. So, but I wouldn't want Emacs to automatically be searching. Any, I mean, I have to use Emacs. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't want anything to be automated. And I don't think, I mean, I have, I'd have to look at the, I haven't actually used the extension, so I'd have to look at it. But, um, but I, I think it was an, you know, as an option and there are multiple, um, online shops that you could choose from. 
So it's not just an Amazon thing. Well, if people want to compare this extension to what we talked about last episode, we'll link to the extension in the show notes. and mm-hmm. You can send your, your complaints to it to the developer, not to the GNOME Foundation. This is not an official <laughs> GNOME Foundation extension of right. any sort, but it does exist in the GNOME community. Anyway, there's been news though since la- the other big fighting argument. Yeah, big argument news. that touches on on an, we've actually covered the topic a number of times in previous shows. Right, and that's why I felt like I, I we had to cover it. I uh, think so. And and I felt I felt like we had some obligation to. And it's been difficult for me in some sense because uh, the topic is copyright assignment. Well, yes, the topic just, is copyright just assignment. Just to, to let and, you know, we're getting back to that old thing. Right, that's yeah, true. The, the, the topic is copyright assignment. There was a uh, opinion piece uh, on LWN about uh, specific issues that relate to FSF's use of copyright assignment, how it relates to the GNU project, and and conservancy was mentioned as well in the article. I, I have this weird problem in this sense because I have personal positions about this issue which don't exactly match either Conservancy or FSF's official policy. And then I actually am supportive of both Conservancy's and FSF's policies as well, because I think they're reasonable policies, both. And so uh, basically I have three different opinions on this. In fact, I was disappointed because when I invite, when I, I didn't invite you actually, the panel was constructed before me, but when I was asked to moderate a panel on copyright assignment at Guadic, not this past year, but the year before, I thought you were going to represent the FSF in that position. Well, I did, and I did express some you FSF positions. You expressed some FSF positions, but you did not uh, advocate for that position. Um, well, that's that. I, I mean, it actually true. sounded much harsher than I meant it to mean. I didn't. I just I was saying. Well, no, you I, actually represented your personal position as you were saying now, and it, you know. Well, no, I, and I and I said that I actually I, I did represent the position that, that nonprofits FSF. could be trusted for copyright assignment. I said that very clearly. Right, that nonprofits right. could be trusted for copyright well, assignment. No, we couldn't well, no, we, well, hang on. I mean, we did say we, you and I both said that where nonprofits can be trusted for copyright assignment, there are certain nonprofits that are organized with good governance and in a certain way, mm. like. We talked about that too, yeah. and I don't think that just nonprofits is good enough. That's especially since trade well. associations are nonprofits as well. Well, and that's what some of the the complaints have been. I mean, it's been weird for me to see these complaints. A, the interesting thing is, is a, so this started from a blog post that Werner Kolk made, who is the maintainer of GNU PG and GNU TLS and some other uh, GNU and contributor to some other GNU programs as well. And he actually very much wants to do more enforcement. Um, he wants uh, a certain amount of independence to do enforcement himself. And because he's a, he's chosen, and he chose when the project's joined to assign the copyright to FSF, those copyrights are assigned to FSF, and therefore FSF has to be the entity doing the enforcement. Right. And as a slightly separate note, in the same, you know, in the fact pattern, the, you know, the GNU name is a registered trademark. Yeah, and there and there's been debates about how they interact with each other, and 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 the funny thing is, is it's the typical conflation that you see people having between uh, who holds copyright, who holds trademarks, and what the license of the software is, and what the name of the software is. It's like all the stuff's conflated into well, one so, set of complaints, right? right. That, and that, and that's my biggest my biggest concern about it is that they're they're all these things are conflated together. Yep. Yep, and well, at the same time, I think there's a lot of confusion about what is the difference between the FSF and GNU. I, I think that's probably the, the, the one that folks... I, 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 I'll just say my, my personal opinion is that I, I understand why folks are confused about that, in part because uh, it's sort of similar to the confusion people have, and then I spend all this time saying when I'm speaking for FSF, when I'm speaking for Conservancy, when I'm speaking for myself, because people conflate those things together. FSF and GNU have the same problem in that uh, Richard Stallman is the president of FSF and he's chief GNU since the GNU project. But the FSF has always had a position that the GNU project is a, is a, a volunteer-driven project that, that FSF's basically, in our terminology, is a fiscal sponsor. Yeah, I would say less. there's more intertwining than people seem, people, some, some people say there is in that the FSF does provide infrastructure and FSF holds the trademark, for example. True, but the, in, in that sense, it's sort of no different than the way Conservancy operates in the sense that Conservancy is holding trademarks and copyrights right, right, for right. some of its projects. So it's, it's really kind of a fiscal sponsorship 
on the surface, I think in the details, it feels different. It's a little different. It fe- I think it, fe- it just feels different for people because I think that people are interacting with RMS in two different roles. And, and yeah, I could see that there's some is, confusion is there. GNU and one role is FSF. Mm-hmm. And uh, for example, I, um, people, people, I, this issue was new to me. I'm on the board of directors of the FSF, um, and therefore. People, a few people who wrote me privately were, were almost angry at me. They weren't. They weren't angry. They were almost angry. They were. They were annoyed. Uh, is the right word that I didn't know about the situation brewing because it had been discussed on a mailing list called GNU Prague, mm-hmm. um, and GNU Prague discuss, uh, which are mailing lists for the GNU project, which I've in fact. I think I've never been on. I, if I was on GNU Prague, I was on it for a very short period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, at one at one point, I've never actually been a maintainer of GNU software. I've never really contributed to the GNU project all that much. Uh, really, I, I, even well, though I was involved in FSF. Right, advocacy. Not really, right? Not it's, really. Well, I, I've been I a volunteer for the FSF for a I long time. I think your time, work at FSF. To the extent to which FSF is a, a is, little bit, yeah, I would just is say part is is it's just it's FSF's the home of the GNU project, but it's not the only program activity of, of FSF. And I really was never focused. No, but the much FSF doesn't really advocate for the use of non GNU project software. No, that's not true at all. Is it not true? Well, I mean, they, they advocate for for I mean, they, they're they, they are promoted replicant. Replicant's not GNU. Oh. They promote replicant because it's the it's Thank the you for free me. software. You're right. You're right. Platform. So, so I mean, I, there was some discussion. Maybe Replicant was going to join GNU, but they decided not to, as far as I know. So you're right. And actually, to to be fair, I'm thinking back actually to the um, the FSF T-shirt that they give away at one of their events, and they had like all the logos of different free software projects, many of which were not GNU projects, mm-hmm. all happily together, working together for free software. So, so the the place where I've intersected with this issue of copyright assignment has not been through the GNU project. Has been as a director of FSF since I came on to the board of directors in the beginning of 2010. Um, I guess it was beginning. It was beginning 2009. At some point, there. it's only been a couple of years uh, recently. And actually, most people know who listen to this show, and I've said it publicly in numerous places that I've been advocating for my personal positions about how to do copyright right. assignment from within the FSF. Now, I I'm thought one that was of, cool that you said that on the panel, by the way. Like I said, I was frustrated that you held your personal position, but I thought it was cool to tell people I'm advocating for this personal position with the board of directors, and I'm one director, and I'm hoping I can yeah. get that. I thought that was really cool. Yeah, and and but I, I but I have a tremendous. The thing is, is I, the thing I'm also known for very heavily is across multiple organizations. I've done a lot of enforcement of the GPL, and most of my views about copyright assignment are completely centered around difficulty and ease of GPL enforcement and and what policies make it easier to uphold copyleft and mm. make sure the software stays free, and so my views on on copyright assignment are nuanced because. The challenges of enforcement are nuanced, in my view. So, so right. I think it is easier to enforce the GPL with copyright assignment. It's not necessary. There was a time in FSF's history where it actually received legal advice. Lawyers who said you needed all the copyright mm-hmm. to enforce. Those lawyers were wrong, but it was because the thing was new. And, and, and like, I mean, if you read GPLv2, there are these vestiges of wording, especially in a GPLv1 as well. Of, of basically, the license is almost trying to tell you, we really are just a copyright license. We're really a copyright license because no one had done that with copyright before. And there was sort of a sense that, uh, is this something copyright law can be used for? And people didn't know. They were like, well, we want to try to To some use extent, it. we still don't know. But, well, I think we do know. But we largely we've know. done a lot of enforcement. We largely know. And so I think. Well, right, but none of that, none of that on appeal in any way. True. But I, I, I agree with you. And the more, the more that, that the more you do, and the more mm-hmm. that, uh, or you know, that time elapses and this becomes the state, the state of play, the more likely it is to continue. But, but it's certainly easier. And I said this on the threads on LWN that that, uh, and on Floss Foundations as well, where where unfortunately a debate about this started up in parallel to the one on LWN. Uh, that that I've I've spent hours and hours and hours, probably weeks of my life, on extra stuff in court proceedings to maintain that even though we didn't have all the copyrights represented, we had a right to enforce the GPL. We've mm-hmm. always been successful, it, but the thing that people don't realize, particularly in U.S. litigation, I've heard uh, other jurisdictions like uh, Harold talks about how Germany is a lot easier, um, and, and there's not as many like opportunities, I guess, for the other side to sort of question you and so forth. But in U.S. litigation, the other side just raises every single species argument they can think of, 
to try and distract the court, to try and get you to to you know to give up and all this sort of stuff. What, what, something like that. It's true. <laughs> no, I know it's true, but for some reason I was imagining you said speciesist. <laughs> oh, I said specious. I tried trying totally to say the word did, specious. Totally I, I probably pronounced it wrong. I pronounce words all the time. No, wrong. but I was imagining like a speciesist. No, no, <laughs> I don't think I don't think <laughs> anybody. I don't think word. any GPL violators are speciesists. I, I don't. I have no reason to believe that's true. Specious, you know, made up like sort of like distracting arguments. Right, uh, right, right, right. And that happens a lot. And 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 one of the ones they bring up is, oh well, uh, Mr. Eric Anderson and Conservancy are only two copyright holders in this busy box program. Yeah. And there's hundreds of other copyright holders, and they're not in this lawsuit. And therefore, some magic happens, and you have to go away and can't bring this claim. Yeah. And as and we've talked I've been about, depo- I spent an entire eight hours being deposed basically on that issue yeah, once. Yeah. And you might again, which is amazing. I mean, the thing is yeah. that we've talked about on the show before when lawyers make arguments, especially in litigation, you make every argument that you can and you make them even though even though some of the arguments might contradict each other it doesn't matter you still make every single argument that you can in your and so, and so when I when I speak to the other FSF directors which I have been for years about the copyright assignment policy I have to admit it's easier to enforce the GPL if you have at least a, a you know overwhelming majority of the copyrights it's easier it's not necessary but it's easier. There's no question oh, man. about that. Do you know what it's the best for? It's the best for correcting defects in licenses. Well, I mean, I think I think that's a that's a complex problem as well that that the FSF has been studying for years and continues to study. How do you how do you figure out and and remember that FSF's a steward of a lot of the programs that have some of the complex exceptions like the GCC yeah. exception. And one of the proposals I've had out there, this is probably the first time said in public, uh, I've had a proposal that we need to version the exception so that we can, uh, that basically yep. we need to version the exceptions the way we version GPL, yep. which FSF's never done before. And, and these are all complex issues and mm-hmm. complex policy questions. Um, and there's a lot of conflation because FSF's the steward of the license as well as being a right. copyright and, holder. And also and it's FSF, complicated. I mean, FSF has, a, um, has another way you can allow them to have stewardship in that you can use or later. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and that that can address the licensing defects. And situation. some people are completely opposed to that type of stuff. A lot of people are well. completely opposed to that. And uh, you know, I think I I've softened a little bit, but an earlier show, I think it was actually in the Software Freedom Law show when we were doing that one. I think I I I defended those people much stronger. Was that before or after the time when um when we when when I when actually Richard Fontana was the first person to really point this out to me that, that basically every other license has automatic or later? Every oh, oh, other free software like, license, yeah, yeah. Mozilla not, public not license, automatically or no, later. Not every other one. Apache does, Mozilla does. Name one that doesn't. Uh, ISC. Yeah, but the thing is, you can re- <laughs> it does because you can relicense it under any almost any license you want. I mean, what about Cuddle? Um, actually, I think it does. Oh, does it? I think, I'm it, just, I think, I'm just I think thinking, Sun I is read allowed it for to update while. Cuddle. I don't CDDL. know. I, I thought so. it didn't actually, which is why I mentioned but, it. But I don't know. I don't know. But I, I think that that a lot of these policy questions are complicated. People have been putting in what does it mean to be a GNU maintainer and what does it mean to be called a GNU project and, and conflating that with the FSF policies, conflating that with everything else. It's a c- complicated set of issues. Yeah, yeah, it, it is a complicated set of issues. And I think having copyright holdings makes it a lot easier in a lot of ways. It's just sort of clean and simple, but it only works when you can really assign to a trusted entity. And I've made this distinction before, but I'm going to do it again because I think it's really important, which is to say that a copyright license agreement can basically grant all the authority that we're talking about here. So a strong license can also grant some of these things that we're talking about. Yeah. And so a lot of people say, oh, you know, what I'm asking for is not an assignment. I'm only asking for a copyright license agreement. But if you have the right to sublicense it under other terms then it's still the same. Yeah, and I think a lot of people have... I'm not mentioning canonical. Yeah, you're not the only person who's made this point. I mean, this is Richard Fontana's big obsession of of CLAs. CLAs are just copyright assignment in disguise, and he's given lots of talks about that. Yeah. And and so I I think that... I mean, that's the funny thing, is that I wonder sometimes if if FSF said, we're just doing a a, a broad CLA... I, I have this feeling that everybody would be like, oh, okay, that's fine. You solved the problem kind of reaction when it's like, it, 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 I, it, I don't think that it would actually change all that much as you're saying, as you're pointing out. Yeah, well, that was my point. Yeah, and but the thing is, is that I, I have a feeling people react to that. People think CLAs are fine. I know, that's why I wanted to stop and mention it because the problems that we're talking about are are consistent for both depending on what the license says. Yeah. So because, for example, most CLA would hand over full authority to enforce the license to the other party, and so you might lose your your ability to enforce. Right. 
Uh, so, and, and, and that's the thing I keep going back to with what Werner wants, because I think it's been so lost that Werner wants to do more GPL enforcement. I have responded some to that in the threads, basically pointing out that I think most people don't realize how difficult enforcement is. Uh, it was fortunate right, uh, that right. interview with me in the H had just been published where I talk about mm -hmm. how difficult it is. People don't realize that it takes years to do these enforcement actions. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, I, 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 I and, and everybody I ever worked with who came new to it, they just couldn't stand, including myself. I, I have to say, I started one once, uh, an enforcement action, and it took so long that, you know, it eventually got dropped. Like, it took yeah. so long. Well, that, that was, I know which, I think I know which one you're talking about. Okay. And um, the, as I recall. I just uh, remember that I actually have done some enforcement. Yeah. But the, pro <laughs> the product got discontinued and then never came into compliance. And then the point is yes. you drop it because you're like, well, you can't this really... product isn't on the market anymore. Nobody needs source code for a product they can't buy. And I mean, that needs in the sense they should have it because it's right to have it. I agree with that. But the point is, what should you focus your time on? A product that's dead or the hundreds of products that are still yeah. active that are violated? Yeah, yeah. Um, so, so it's, it's, yeah, it's, it's a really. I did monitor that company you know, for a while to see if they. Oh, they've been in and out of compliance. It's, yeah. They're, they're. Um, but in any event. Harold's dealt with them recently, oh, yeah. within the last year or two. Um, but what was oh? But I actually wanted to get back to this point of what is a trusted entity, because I think that what's you know when I think I think when there's like all this discontent with the FSF, I think I think there's something more going on with it. Like I think that the FSF unfairly gets the brunt of criticism um, many times because folks are looking to point you know to like looking to point at some fault at the FSF because they feel like the FSF is too. Um, you know, hardlined to their principles, um, whereas many others think that, you know, that's the role of the FSF. And, you know, mm. so I, I, and I, and I think that, that in some ways the FSF gets it, gets it a little bit tougher than others. On the other hand, I think that I've said this before that, you know, there are different corporate governance models. And, you know, from where I am, I think that, you know, I used to really advise as a lawyer that nonprofit entities have a model that's more like the FSFs, you know. In what, where, in what way would you suggest that? Well, I was I mean, going to say that, um, you know, I used to advise that you, know, you can set up a nonprofit with voting members or you can set them up with self-perpetuating boards of directors or similar kinds of, like, that mm -hmm. kind of a construct where directors... Or very small voting membership. Yeah, or like, yeah, where there's like, yeah, they appoint new directors and um, and there are rules basically amongst those de developers, as opposed uh, those um, directors, as opposed to a... Um, you know, something like GNOME, which is a voting membership. And I used to very much advocate for um, the self-appointing board with my clients because it's so much easier from a legal perspective. It's There's so much less procedure and it's so much, you know, it's, it's not as easy to get out of compliance and all this business. But I have to say that now having become an active participant in GNOME, I really see the benefits of a voting membership. And I think that there are some real advantages. And I think the FSF is a special case, so I'll put that aside. But I think if there are other entities that want to accept copyright assignments, I would recommend that they be have a very broad-based voting membership. But what do you do about the case where a – and there are the enemies of, of license enforcement. There, there are a lot of people who don't want to see GPL enforced ever. Um, uh, trust me, they're constantly trying to <laughs> to to uh, politically outmaneuver me and all this other stuff to, to try and uh, as I said on the mailing list recently, they're co I'm constantly being presented with sticks and carrots to either stop me from doing enforcement or entice me to not do it anymore uh, on basically a monthly basis. Mm -hmm. But given that there's those people out there, that wouldn't they just game the voting membership of this thing you're thinking about? But that hasn't happened, as far as I know. Hasn't happened in Gnome. In in a broad based free software project voting member. Do you know of any that that has happened with? Because there aren't that many. That's the thing is, is there's no, I don't know, name a nonprofit that has a voting of, membership that that is A, has a voting membership, B, is a steward of a project Apache. other than GNOME. So I think Apache is different because the license is so permissive. I mean, I think if, if the thing is, is that if Apache has a broad voting membership, but the the license they require the license being permissive. Uh, but, uh, I guess I guess a bunch of copyleft people could show up and change Apache license to be a copyleft or while, something that could be gained that way. I think you can't cite them as an example of another organization on this issue. It, the governance issue is truly there because when you have the voting membership, you have a turnover in directors. You have sort of it keeps it you know it it it, it has some kind of. 
I guess, but then why? I mean, why does Apache make these deals that, that look like they're just from company to, and deals, and I, and like IBM, like like making a deal for ApacheOpenOffice.org, and 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 basically just taking a project that kowtows to some specific corporate interests? Like, well, why does that so happen? So, if the then? Apache voting membership disagreed with that and agreed with you, they would, you know, vote a new board in. But do like, we, I mean, do we know for a fact that I didn't game the voting membership? In the, self, in the self-appointed board, basically, you know, it's much more likely that you can get a small group of people that will make a decision that a broader base might agree, disagree with. I, I just, I'm saying that there's a lot of, well, and that's that, why I'm not saying that we should allow right? the Apache Foundation to have, be the steward of the GPL. That's not what I'm saying yeah. at all. I'm saying that, you know, if we're thinking about ways that we can improve on the situation, you know, we make the selection criteria, um, you know, strong in terms of becoming a member of that organization that's going to be the steward, right? I mean, those are those are the things. That I think you need Gnome, to do. and I agree with you. I think Gnome has done a good job with that. I, I mean, and I'm not saying that Gnome should be the steward of the GPL either. I'm saying that mm-hmm. like some of the criticisms of the FSF are 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 actually related to these governance issues. And, I, I don't agree. And, I mean, and while I actually think that Richard Stallman, as the head of the FSF, and you know, as an ideological leader, is special. Like he has a you know. They, it's it's a little bit different than these other organizations that I'm talking about, but mm. this is why I said you know oh, I, the I, legitimacy of the FSF in this role I wanted to put aside a little bit. Well, and I agree with you with the uniqueness of RMS. This is this is actually a funny thing that I, I often say that that RMS is actually less dogmatic than I am because I want to make sure that I don't overcompromise in the sense of like give up a political position, give up a, a core principle by accident effectively because I, I compromise. I, I look like a good compromise at the time, but it was really a bad one and I got tricked. Mm-hmm. Um, Armas is actually really good at, at figuring out when compromises are safe and I'm not actually. So, so it's funny because RMS, people think, oh, RMS is so dogmatic and I've been told, oh, you're the more reasonable version of RMS. Talk to in fact, I'm Can more dogmatic. Can you give an example of a compromise that... Um, you probably wouldn't have made, but RMS did. I'm sorry, it's putting you on the spot, really. I don't know. I, I mean, I don't, I don't know how I would have dealt with the situation of the creation of the LGPL. I don't know for sure. Mm. Here's a here's one. Actually, there's there's an easy one, right? Okay. If it, if it were solely up to me, the Affero clause would have been in GPL v3. Right. Right. I, I was sure that was the right move, and RMS decided it was better to compromise and let. He basically, he actually, he's, his view about AGPL is developers are are going to vote with with their choices. But basically, if if we drift towards a, a Faro because it's it's upward compatible from GPL v three, we'll just get a Faro GPL as the default copyleft instead of GPL mm-hmm. as the default copyleft. That's that's his view, his compromise. I wouldn't have made that compromise because I feel like the threat of network services is too great, and we had to had to answer it. And we and my fear of GCC being used as a network compiler and all these things. And what do you think about that decision now that I have no idea. Yeah. I, I mean I, I think that we're still under threat from network services. We certainly are. But but of course it's all it's all informed by the fact that GPLv3 has not received the wide level of adoption for various reasons that I think everyone was sort of almost delusional about during GPLv3 process. Um, and I think the GPLv3 process was somewhat broken because of a mass delusion that GPLv3 was just going to be automatically adopted by everybody. Of course, it was automatically adopted by the GNU project, which brings us back to that issue. Um, but And it was automatically adopted potentially by those who voted or later. Well, I mean, that's the thing, is how many projects re- did their next release as V3 or yeah, later instead true. of V2 that's or true. later, right? And many, and, Mo- and some, most or later and projects some have changed, left themselves. Some, some, some went moved to to V2 only after that, too. Not not, not many. No. I, I, the funny thing is, is I'm, I'm associated with the VisiBox project is actually the only project I know that, that moved steadfast in response to GBL V3 and said we're mm-hmm. moving to v, V2 only because of because of that mm-hmm. um and i, I mean I, I supported their decision because it i've it's the maintainer's role to decide that and the maintainer at the time wanted it mm-hmm. um and so and so while while i didn't think it was the best policy i thought that was, happened before they were a member of conservancy oh no they were already a member of conservancy oh. yeah okay <laughs> yeah, because I, I, I ended up. The funny thing is, I, I ended up having I to defend. In, that, in, the, in the irony of ironies, I ended up having to do some politics to defend them against me and against former maintainers who were. I should just say it was Rob Landley who made the change to V two. It's stupid not to name names. This is public archived, um, and Bruce Perrins objected to it. 
um, hmm. a former a former maintainer uh, um, and saying that he wasn't allowed to do it. And I actually had to be in the ironic position of defending Rob's right to go to V2 only because he had a right to do the next release V2 only if he wanted to. V2 right. later says that. And Bruce was arguing that he couldn't. Uh, and so I was in this weird position of being like pro V3, but defending somebody's right to go to V2 only if they wanted Funny to. Funny that. Um, yeah, well, it's, I, I'm going to stand up for what's right and what somebody's allowed to do, mm-hmm. right? I mean, that's more that trumps my own personal yep. desire for what I'd like to see yeah. if I were the maintainer, right? Yeah, we had a long discussion about co- this, basically. Yeah. I remember in terms of the when we, we had our, our uh, ISC relicensing <laughs> show. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So, uh, so I, I mean, I think I think the one thing we haven't talked about is this question of a GNU project and what it means to be a GNU project. And well, GNU is a GNU project. Indeed, it is. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, do you feel? I, I'm gonna I'm gonna put you on the spot now. Okay. Do you feel like you're you're under? I mean, I mean do you agree with these GNU maintainers who say that the, the GNU is just not is 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 useless to them? Is that, that they they feel like no? I mean, it's a straitjacket. I mean, the kind of things I mean, they've been saying. I think the no, I don't think so. I mean, I I think that being a GNU project is a is an advantage. I mean, you know, as I as as I I often say, the the good in GNOME is for freedom. I mean, and there's a reason why that works out. You know, I, I think there is a huge advantage to being a. Even though project. RMS doesn't like it when you say that. Wait, he doesn't like I th- it. When I think I... Yeah, I think he wants you to say something different. He doesn't want me to say the good is for freedom. I, I didn't. I, he, didn't he comment that he, no, he didn't think that was the best? He said something me. like that's not the best way to do it. Not to me. Not to me. Okay. He said it. I, I think he. Um, might have said that. I, I mean, I I did I do often say the good is for GNU, which stands for freedom. Yeah, but I think you probably like that. Yeah. But uh, yeah, so I mean, I, I think. I, but oh, it's I know what you're talking about because. Yeah. Uh, uh, Jake Applebaum quote paraphrase me oh, in his, as Karen was. says the good is for freedom. But, okay. Yeah. So, um, yeah. but uh, one of the interesting thing is is Gnome didn't choose to assign copyright, and that's the thing I think people forget. Well, you actually wrote the Gnome policy. I helped write. Yes, I was, I was a co-author with Michael Meeks and Vincent Unz, uh, Vincent okay. Unz was also a co-author. It was the three of us really wrote okay. the document. Um, but the reason, and actually, to, obviously, I was representing effectively FSF in that role, in the sense that I was on the advisor board for mm-hmm. FSF, representing FSF to GNOME. Um, and the reason I actually had to talk with FSF about it, and and I, it was reiterated to me the policy FSF's always had, which is when a project joins GNU, it has a decision about whether it wants to assign copyright or not, and GNOME decided not to assign copyright when a long it joined time GNU ago. a long time ago. Yeah. And so GNOME is not a GNU project that's copyright assignment is required. And that's actually a common I've I've had I've seen that misconception going back to the 90s that people think all anything called GNU officially is assigned to FSF. It's actually two types of projects, ones that were originally written by FSF, which includes things like GCC and Bash, stuff that was published first by FSF employees who wrote the code. Um, and the second is projects that at joining made a decision to assign. Now, and I think the question people are raising is I want to revisit that decision. I brought this project to GNU and now I want to revisit the decision I made back then, right. even though they were told at the time that that's a decision right. you have the, to make now and it's going to last. The document does say irrevocable. Yeah, it's going to last. And so, I, I, I mean, I, I don't, I, I, things change. I understand that people have feel differently about the FSF than they did before or whatever it is, but you know, it's it sort of reminds me of that of that scene in It's a Wonderful Life where where everybody's saying like I just want my I just want my money back out of your thing and he's like well you signed an agreement that said you know you, you your money would be invested in other people's houses and you can't just cut, walk in here and say you have to have your money back you have to you stick to your agreement and so I feel like it's like that so you have to if if you agreed to do it knowing at the time that's that was a, a thing and and I'm sure that GNU projects that come forward now or projects that come to join GNU now would probably choose not to assign copyright. Mm-hmm. I don't know. I don't actually know the last. Some probably would. I mean, you would choose to assign. You know, I, I think a lot of people who feel like enforcement is valuable but don't want to have to deal with any of that. Well, and that's why people have signed to Conservancy, right? I have multiple BusyBox copywriters who have approached Conservancy to assign their BusyBox copyrights to Conservancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, amusingly, and I've said this publicly before, Eric Anderson is not one of them. And the reason Eric doesn't want to do it, I think, I, I, I've sort of asked him this and he dodged the question once when I asked him, but I think he's, he's watched a lot of different organizations help him with enforcement over the years. He started with his dad as his lawyer, just doing the enforcement by himself. Mm-hmm. FSF, when I was at FSF, I helped him do enforcement. He enforced through FSF for a while. 
Then he was just a direct client of SFLC who did his enforcement on behalf. And then the joint conservancy and then conservancy took over its enforcement. So Eric and, and there are periods in there where Eric went back to his father and did enforcement because nobody was really helping them. At the, for, so Eric's had this history of doing enforcement and with help from different people. And my guess, uh, he's never said this to me, but my guess is he feels like, well, I don't know what's going to happen next and who's going to be available. What if Conservancy doesn't have resources to do enforcement anymore and can't do enforcement and I still mm -hmm. want to enforce uh, my copyrights? Uh, where where do I take them? And so I can well, understand luckily, Eric's perspective. With Conservancy, there's an agreement in place where assets will get transferred uh, on a certain deadline should either party choose to terminate. It means that you can't you can transfer the, the, the copyrights to another nonprofit. You know, the five one C three copyrights yes. can't be locked into, but they would be locked into some C three and some successor C three. Yes, right? but if and they if you don't if a conservancy project doesn't like the way conservancy is enforcing their copyrights, they, they can, can go to another nonprofit. True, another they can do that. And, and, and Dennis and Eric could choose to do choose to do that for BusyBox. Mm -hmm. But even so, Eric's felt like he wants to keep his own copyrights, mm -hmm. and and he like I think he he likes and is willing to be involved in the court. He's willing to be deposed, which he's had to be deposed. Right, uh, and that's times. a little bit different because I think a lot of folks just have no interest yeah and and i, I think and also it's not fun work yeah i might add as a little pat on the I, back I, I, for I'm you a, bradley well, well i'm just amazed that people want um to to do all that I, I think quite okay and this and this is this is kind of uh, i guess people are gonna say this is harsh but i think the people who feel like fsf's not doing enforcement right for them uh on the copyrights they assigned i i think respectfully i'll try to be as respectful as possible i think they just don't know what enforcement's like I think they haven't spent year after year after year doing enforcement. Well, would you tell those fo those people who are unhappy with their enforcement that they should volunteer to assist the FSF with the enforcement of their? I think they should, right? Because there's I think a lot people, of work to be. I mean, yeah. Know. Well, and, and I put I put a call for CCS checkers in my the H interview. I mentioned it on LWN again. I've gotten zero emails. No one. Everybody knows how to email me. You search for B Coon email and you find it, right? Or Bradley Coon email, you'll find it. And you'll be able to email me. I've got not one volunteer. That was. It's been four weeks now since I said started saying that I said it first in my my interview on the H like uh, pointing out that I always I've always asked for volunteers and I did it even more publicly people don't want to volunteer to do that work because I, I don't blame them it's boring work. I can't even find people to I talked about this in my interview with the H I don't know if, if you had a chance to see that mm -hmm. but because uh, it was Not yet. it was recently but it was recent but uh, it was a couple weeks ago but it's it, you know, it got mixed in with with um, this story actually and sort of got buried by this story um, unfortunately so that's why I keep referring to it in my comments because I'm like you should go read this because I talked about enforcement just right. a couple weeks ago right. but nobody read it because another story took over and took the news cycle anyway um, so uh, but but one of the things I say in there is that is that I have trouble hiring people at, at the at nonprofit rates people want huge amounts of money and I tell the story of how I once tried to get somebody to do CCS checks and they quoted a rate of 100 euro an hour and I said I basically laughed and said, um, what's your nonprofit rate? And the answer came back, that is my nonprofit rate. And I was like, I've never paid that much for Can a CCS check in my I've life. I've asked for, um, for some uh, hourly quotes recently for some GNOME work. And I've gotten amazingly like considerate nonprofit rates for not sexy work. Cool. Well, that's good. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm we, really actually, excited. We we had um, I, I, this is a little bit off topic, but it's pro I think it probably be interesting to people. But about nonprofit rates in general, um, you know, Conservancy's had a lot of uh, contentious discussion internally with our projects about what an appropriate rate is, uh, because develop a lot of developers are used to being paid very very well, and and nonprofits usually don't pay that well. And Conservancy ultimately had to set a rule. The Conservancy will not pay more than U.S. seventy-five an hour without a vote of our board of directors mm -hmm. directly on that particular contract because because folks are used to getting one hundred and fifty, two hundred dollars an hour for software development, and it's very difficult for me as a nonprofit executive to justify those rates when I know there are developers who are excited about projects who will take sixty, which is pretty much the average. I think it's both the, both the average and the and the mode, the mode and the median, like it's the average in the middle. Uh, of what conservancy tends to pay developers. That's great. Uh, it was sixty dollars an hour, and yeah. and I have contractors who work at, for as little as, as thirty dollars an hour doing software development uh, with mm -hmm. conservancy, um, who are willing to, I guess, like like you're talking about, willing to accept lower rates, uh, and that's good when they want to do that. But the thing is, is that that's the software development work. That's actually writing software. Yep. The CCS checking is not writing software. It's trying to get stuff to build that you know is not going to build. Uh, because the source release isn't correct, and you're checking it to make a list of things that are wrong to try to get another source release, which you then have to try again. Right. Um, anyway, it's it's crummy work, and 
it's great that you do it. Yeah, and I think I think the people who are and being critical Denver. haven't really done this. Uh, D- Denver, uh, I, I, I mentioned him by name in my interview on the Edge. He's uh, he works uh, currently one day a week with Conservancy, uh, in part doing CCS uh, checks. And I've had a whole range of people that I've worked with before, and and people like like uh, Dave Turner, whom I used to work at with FSF. He can't. He's he's like done. He wants to go be a, he's a software developer now. He wants to write free software. Because that's much more enjoyable. Writing new free software right. is much more enjoyable than this. Oh, stuff. absolutely. And so, and so, I, I understand why people don't want to do it. And I, I, I just feel like those who are saying, uh, you know, "I'm glad that they want to do enforcement," but I think they don't realize how hard enforcement is. And 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 that's why there's so few orgs that are doing it. And it's why FSF is sort of keeping this position of we need the assignments. Right. So, you're you're sick. I, I sort of can tell the way Karen Sorry. looks. She's sick of this topic. No, I just think we've we've covered it. Well, I mean, is there anything else you wanted to add about the trademark stuff? Because I think that's the one part we didn't cover yeah, as well. Yeah, I guess I did want to talk about the trademark stuff because I, I just think that, you know, using the GNU name, the, the point, the whole point of what you asked me about, you know, GNOME being a GNU project is that, you know, is that when you identify as a GNU project that has meaning. And so, you know, it has meaning because of the very things that trademark law are, is predicated on, mm-hmm. right? Like it stands for a set of principles that are applied consistently and, um, you know, and, and are arbitrated by an organization who holds the trademark. Mm-hmm. And I think that that didn't come across in the article um, and I think is actually really, I don't know, I mean, for me, that's that's sort of the biggest point. Like, being able to call yourself a GNU project is, is an important thing. I mean, do do you think? I mean, I mean, but what, what do you want to comment at all about how the interactions of the trademark with the GNOME trademark work? Well, it's a little bit less complicated for GNOME because GNOME isn't using the term GNU generally. But we do say very prominently on our website that we're a GNU project, and if we do something that violates the principles of the GNU project. You better bet that Richard Stallman is going to be is going to like yeah. be knocking on my door to keep us honest, and I would like him to continue to do so, because if we're you know if we're doing something in a non-free way or in a way that violates the you know, I, I think that that's that that totally defeats the purpose of GNOME, mm-hmm. which I'm actually really excited. Our latest our latest slogan on our website is "Freedom for Everybody," and um, as opposed to "Made it Easy," which it used to. Mm-hmm. used to say and freedom for everybody i think is really the kind of slogan that we want to have there's been a real like in really interesting ideological movement in the GNOME community as of late to to really embrace our you know our freedom roots and i think but that's, isn't, isn't that you're doing i'd like to think that i have something to do with it <laughs> well i don't know I, I i think that i think that you've you've uh you've brought a you've brought a that you brought a, a, you've helped foster a new culture in Gnome. That's what I'm thinking has happened. I hope that's happened. I appreciate that. I, th- I think that's what's happened. I, I mean, I, I, it's not that I don't think that certain some Gnome developers are not very well, pro software free. It's a big community, but it's anyway. a big community, and there's a lot of factions, and there's a lot of people who are who uh, who really. I mean, there's there's current Gnome contributors, there's former Gnome contributors who who just despise FSF. Yeah. I mean, really despise. I mean, I saw I saw a post from a former Gnome contributor basically. Just, just railing against how horrible, like, like relating this to the GNOME situation and railing against how horrible the FSF is. Yeah, and I've gotten a few, um, a few personal emails about, you know, different things over the years. But the truth is that, you know, is that we get so much benefit from mm-hmm. having a clear ideological, mm-hmm. you know, mission, and being a GNU project is a really important part of that. So, you know, and I think that that's where a trademark comes in, right? Because GNU stands for something. Yeah, I, I agree with that. And I, I think that's that's why I think that's why people joined the GNU project was because the GNU project had this ideological thing. And, and when I compare fiscal sponsors, I point out that, that the affiliation with GNU is is an ideological one. Like Conservancy, I mean, the only sense to which Conservancy has any ideology is people know I'm an executive director and I have some ideological positions, which I try very hard to not... Right. It's just funny. It's funny how it's the opposite with conservancy. Yeah. But, but yeah, when I wrote the part of the the primer at SFLC, the which is a little out of date, I think, but oh, the yeah. free software primer specifically says, like, you know, in the differences between the fiscal sponsors, that FSF is an ideological one. Yeah. And, it's, and, and being yeah. part of GNU is an ideological affiliation. And so if people's ideologies change, I think FSF is incredibly consistent. I mean, there's one thing that RMS is, it's consistent in his positions. Mm-hmm. 
And I think that folks have decided, folks have, who affiliated themselves with the GNU project have changed their opinions and they don't want to be affiliated anymore. And I think it's a complicated question. I mean, you can't, I think you know this as a trademark lawyer uh, in, your, in, in your former existence when you did trademark law as a day job, right? You mm-hmm. can tell us that a trademark holder can't just say, oh, you can take the name and walk away. Yeah, and yeah. No, without, yeah, without, I mean, to do so would be to, to, to endanger your brand, right? I mean, your yeah. trademark law is funny. I won't rehash all the things that we've yeah. talked about trademark mm-hmm. law because we've done it in previous episodes. Mm-hmm. But, you know, trademark is all about having a brand and protecting it. And that, I mean, and, and necessarily needing to do so in order to have those yeah. rights. I was surprised about the factual, factual inaccuracy in the article about the, um, the GNU trademark. Yeah, I mean, I, th- I think people are confused because the, the couple of places, examples people use like Nutella. In fact, I know this personally because that was the first time back in, in 2000, 2001 timeframe when somebody was using the GNU trademark incorrectly. And I was I just started working at FSF at the time. That's back when I used to work for FSF. I don't work for FSF anymore, people. Some people seem <laughs> to forget that. Um, I'm just on the board of directors. I'm a volunteer. Um, it's even worse when you're worse. It's even worse. I'm using air quotes yeah. when you're a director. <laughs> I guess that's true. But anyway, so um, the, uh, the the Gnutella, uh, basically, we at FSF, uh, at the time when Gnutella came out, looked how we could enforce against somebody, and there was no entity to enforce against. Like, there was no, it was like, it was a very gray project right. in a lot of ways. Mm-hmm. And so it's like, what, what can you do if there's this gray project that nobody's leading? They're like they're releasing code on like secret websites. Right. That, right. And you don't you even know do. who the developers are because they're anonymous. Right. Yeah. You can do what you did, which is like, do the best you can. Yeah, and, and, and make announce it public. that we don't yeah, agree exactly. with that. And it's and, and so the I think the main search for Gnutella now is the page at FSFs that explains Gnutella is not That's funny. with the GNU yeah. project. Well and I would point out that I you know the GNU trademark was registered much more recently than that. I only checked re- I only checked because I was surprised when I saw that in the article. Well, we had, I was we like, had oh I thought it was trademark. Well right, but I when it said that when it linked to the Gnutella example and said that FSF's only recourse was to enforce on uh, common law trademarks. I was so surprised, so I went and I looked up the trademark. You guys can do that. You know, you can look up any trademark on the USPTO, um, on the USPTO website. website within the U.S. Yeah, and so I, I think I think that I think GNU wants to keep the name. There's there's been these arguments about that. And the funny thing is, is that the 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 biggest argument that. GNU has had has been about the name of the operating system and wanting people to know that the operating system is GNU that mm-hmm. they're usually using, and and I think I think that GNU would like to see the name used more to refer to the conglomeration of software that is the GNU plus Linux operating mm-hmm. system, and and so it's an interesting situation where people feel people actually feel like there's value in the name that they want to take these projects and still call them GNU even though they're not going to do projects anymore, and what's that mean? Right, right, but it won't have any meaning if... Right. You know, yeah, you know. it's a weird situation, I think. And and that, and and because GNU wants to be inclusive, I mean, I think I, I'm sort of annoyed that I saw criticism, again, from one of these former GNOME people um, saying that, oh, GNU only enforces the trademark when it's convenient and all this stuff, and they only care about the GNU when it's convenient. I think GNU has been pretty consistent in caring about the name and the branding. And I know that when something's offered to the GNU project... It, one of the one of the tests is whether it fits into the system as a whole, the GNU operating system as a whole, whether it actually fits. And this is one of the reasons I think Replicant didn't end up joining because it's not really it's not part of the right, GNU right, system. Right, right, right. Um, so it really can't be GNU Replicant. It wouldn't make any sense. Um, but it could. I mean, GNU could decide to decide to have a distribution for phones. Yes. But again, that I mean, that's that was actually the debate because GNU uses GNU glibc and GNU uses GNU's design as a server and desktop operating system, not as a phone operating system. So uh, you'd have to make a lot of changes to GNU to make it run on a phone. That's why most phones are Android and Linux, not GNU and Linux. Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, so I, I think I think these, I, I, I can sort of understand why people are, are concerned. I, I think it's the, cla- and I know you have this in the GNOME community too, where this, all the debates end up public. And it's, yeah, it's really frustrating. I mean, it's, it's not, it's, it's, it's really great in a lot of ways. Well, the problem is, it's is, is, really annoying. is that people, third parties who aren't involved in the debate, find out about them and join them. I mean, that's what happened on the Floss Foundations list. A bunch of people who are not GNU maintainers, who are not copyright assignees to FSF, start opining and deciding that, oh, this is, FSF's horrible, FSF's great, whatever, and that just aren't party to the discussion. And you get a lot of, get a lot of FUD that way and get a lot of, of arguments that way. I think it makes it tough. It's going to make a tougher job, right? For me, Somebody who's advocating for reform 
and, and improvements to the copyright assignment policies of FSF, my job's harder now, not easier. Oh, yeah, of course. Because now the, the, there's a tendency, and people, you well, must realize this, people dig in their heels when, when, when they're confronted with constant, you're horrible, you're horrible. People, human beings have a tendency to dig in their heels. And we in particular in the free software world are just such a divisive community. Yeah. Like, there are so many issues we could point to that are like this. When yeah. we, and we're, you know, actually, um, I don't think she'd, she'd mind that I call her out on this, but, um, but Joan Marie Diggs, you know, came to me one day and she was like, can't we just get past all of these different disagreements? Like we're, we as a free software world are just, we're, we're hurting our, we, you know, we, we are, we've got such limited resources. We're such a small community and we fight each other over a lot of times stupid things, which then prevents the overall adoption of free software. Yeah, I mean, I think the danger in that argument is then you get the, sh the shuttleworths who basically say, oh, people who don't just agree that Ubuntu is great are ideologues who, who hate <laughs> us, right? I mean, that's the problem. That's the slippery slope of that argument. Well, is, the, is that basically anybody no, I, who disagrees I, is an ideologue and, and therefore should be should be rejected out, outright. Yeah, but I, well, that's not the way she meant it. And I know that's not the way she... I, I didn't mean to say yeah, she did. The problem is that, that her argument, while valid, has a slippery but slope it's totally on the other side valid. I mean, it's, to it's totally valid. It's probably right, yeah. even. It yeah, just has a slippery so. slope on the so. other side. Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't call it a slippery slope. Uh, I, I think it does. Um, because I, th I think that it's easy to say, well, it can I mean, be if you're not with us, you're against us, kind of. Anybody who's divisive and says that they disagree or, or says that somebody's wrong. I mean, I was told recently that, but that we fight about everything. it's wrong to say somebody's wrong. I, like, basically, I was told that, that I was a bad person and, and not, not welcome in the free software community because I, I would say that I'll say that somebody's wrong if I think they're wrong. I've had so many, yeah. I mean, I've had a lot of discussions where in the free software world where we basically say, okay, so we'll just agree to disagree. Yeah. Well, it's, and so, and <laughs> but so as I long as we can work together, it's not a problem. Yeah, well, maybe. I mean, that's... I'm, um, I, I think it's. I think it's going to be tough. It's going. It's certainly going to be tough trying to advocate for policy changes now that that everybody's fighting over it, right? Yeah. When people are are can have concerns, right? They've raised issues and said, "I'd like to see this fixed." Um, and then it doesn't get fixed in the time frame they like, and then they're saying, "Well, you refused to do what I asked you to do." And well, to be fair, to flip that around, I mean, at some point you have to sort of take other action if you want to see things change, right? I mean, you often talk about when you go after violators true. that. True. You know, they say they're fixing it. They say, and then eventually, if you don't, if there's you, you don't sue. If there's no teeth, then you're. What are you doing? And so I think that you know people perceive differently what their own time frame yeah. is and what they reasonably. I mean, I guess I'm be. personally annoyed because I, I I tried really hard to make it clear and doing that desktop summit panel and so forth yeah. that that I was attempting to reform and change some policies uh, and and but but that the issues are complicated. And I, I think. I think folks don't want to look at how complicated issues are for 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 people. I mean, I've tried yeah. to. Well, that certainly doesn't make good press. <laughs> yeah, that's true. It doesn't. I mean, I've done this for. I mean, this is one of the reasons I let GPL violations matters take years, right? I mean, I, 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 I our outside counsel, good old Dan Ravisher, he always tells us like, oh, we should be in court tomorrow. We can sue them tomorrow. We can sue them tomorrow. It's a copyright violation. You can sue them. And of course, we're not suing people tomorrow because. I, I actually understand. I want to just chime in here trouble. and just say that Dan is not like, while he is a great litigator and a lot of his, he does a lot of good work through litigation, he's not like, he's not an ambulance chaser and he's not like trying to push no. everyone to sue. No, but his point is he basically. He prefers amicable resolution. Of course he does. Wanna... But, but he's, he's our litigator and your litigator is going to advise you that the litigation is a good option. Um, especially when your case is strong and the case is always strong in enforcement. I, the reason I let violators go for years out of compliance, trying to get them into compliance is because I understand that it's more complicated than it looks for them to come into compliance. And that they have people they have to convince, and and, and I, I, you know, I, I think it's really kind of horrible when people criticize and say, oh well, the you know, conservancy does this enforcement and, and pulls products off shelves and all this sort of thing. I mean, that's exactly the kind of thing I'm talking about. You have to sometimes give people time to do what's right, and I think people people have a double standard. They they expect perfection from the people they are are kind of closest to, and are sometimes more willing to give other parties um, who are further away from them more benefit of the doubt. It's like it's like a, a um, what's what's that what's that cliche? Um, familiarity breeds contempt. Right. That's what I see happening a lot with the FSF. Yeah. People people are contemptful. The FSF of it. is popular to bash. Yeah. 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 And so I, I, I that's 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 what I see a lot of and and you know and and anyway. 
I mean, the thing is, is like nobody's like out there saying how horrible Oracle is, and it's like the biggest proprietary software distributor. Oh, there in are the people world. saying that. But the point is, is that they're they're busy complaining about these nuanced issues with the FSF and, and not <laughs> okay, and the, not complaining about the fact that IBM still produces millions and millions of lines of proprietary software every year. Well, you can't really compare the FSF to a for-profit company. I know, but the point is, is that and people are emotional about you know the nonprofits they care about and volunteer for. Oh, that's an interesting point. So you're saying basically that that they're more critical because they care. That I can that I, I can think that's probably with. true. Yeah. I think that's true with Werner. I, I actually I've known Oh, Werner I think for so definitely. Time. I think Werner cares yeah. about obviously cares about enforcement. I think you enforced. can see yeah, totally. I just think it's funny that the people in the thread are are are, are criticizing enforcement when it's right, like right, what right. Werner wanted was more enforcement. Don't forget that. So and funny. I I mean I think I think the FSF wants to give that to him certainly if there's enforcement actions they should be doing, but it's complicated. Anyway, we're repeat, I'm repeating myself now, so I think we can wrap up. I think we just did already did. All right. Okay. So so we'll we'll have another show at some point following this one. It could be closely following. Possibly. And happy 2013. Okay. Whatever. Freeze and Freedom is produced by Dan Lynch of Pod Factory and can be found at podfactory.org. Thanks to Mike Tarantino for our theme music. This episode of Freeze and Freedom is licensed under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States license. You can follow Freeze and Freedom, Bradley, and Karen on Identica and also read Bradley's and Karen's blogs. Links can be found on the Freeze and Freedom website, faith.us. That's F A I F.us. Freeze and Freedom.